Hi, welcome to Clitterly Speaking, the podcast. I'm Michelle Doherty. And I'm Emily Lane. We are BFFs dedicated to bringing you conversations between girlfriends over a bottle of wine. Oh, I am so excited about the wine part. Oh, me too. So pull up a chair, grab your glass, and let's get talking. Hello, 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 Emily. Hello, Michelle. How are you doing? Oh, man. You know, I am great because we are back here in the studio. I know. We have more wine. Thank God. We have another guest. (laughs) We have another fabulous guest. And uh, of course, that just puts me in the best mood, even on this rainy, chilly day. I know. And the time went back another hour, so it's got dark, what fell back over the weekend. And so now it gets darker sooner. Which is good. It's nice. I love to, it. Um, I love that extra hour in the morning. <laughs> it really helps me. Well, you know, I'm finally on time. <laughs> so I'm, I've actually never went to daylight savings time. I just always operate on standard time. So for like six to seven months of the year, I'm just perpetually an hour, hour late. late. <laughs> so now I'm on. I'm on time, which is good. Well, and good. Then, well, thank goodness you were on time today. Um, except on Mondays, I'm always on time early, <laughs> early on time. You know, I like, I show up, you know, about two o'clock in the afternoon and I just sit outside the building and, and look up and say someday, a few hours now, I'll get in there and uh, start talking on the podcast and drinking some wine. Yes. But anyway, um, yeah, it's nice to be here and, and it's always, uh, lovely to, um, drink wine with you, talk yes. with you and have a fabulous guest to talk with. So yes. anyway, I'm like, get us rolling what we're drinking yes. today. So let's start with the wine and then we'll introduce our great friend, Sarah. So um, I have for us today a wine that you've had before, uh, mm-hmm. Michelle. Mm-hmm. It's the Cap Royale Bordeaux Supérieur. It's from 2015. Well, we had the luxury of tasting this one in advance. We went to our Bordeaux class a little while ago and learned all about all of the various delineations of the wines, the Grand Vin and all of the various areas of Bordeaux. And in the class, this just struck us because it's one heck of a good value price. It is. $13. And I'm telling you what, you taste this. This is a serious Bordeaux. Um, you will feel like you really, you know, splurged on this wine. So so since we had the class mm-hmm. and we've had a few bottles of this Cap Royale <laughs> okay. since then, and we kept going back to the wine merchant to get more, that um, <laughs> every time we go now, yes. I have I pick up three bottles because I know I can drink it all by myself. Mm-hmm. It's a good one that you don't have to share with anybody if you don't mm-hmm. feel like it. But if you are going to share, like we talked on another episode before, if you are going to share, this is a bottle that you want to have another bottle ready. Absolutely. Because you're not going to be finished talking. And uh, But it's so, uh, so tasty. I agree. You know, this is... For me, this is, I always like to get a case of something like this right around the holiday season because, you know, I know I'm going to lots of parties. I, I want to bring something that I know people will enjoy, but I can't always bring that really, really, really special bottle every time. So, and it's funny, we had this conversation because Emily was like, Yeah, you'll yeah, just get like a case. And then when you go to these holiday parties, I'll just bring this bottle of wine. And I looked at her like, Are you nuts? <laughs> why would you give away this bottle of wine? Why would you buy this case? And she's like, Michelle, you know, have some class, you know? <laughs> you, can't, you can't keep showing up with those $3 bottles. People are, they're, they're going to they're gonna catch on to you pretty soon. And then I thought, oh, I think the answer is for me, I have to buy two cases. Yeah. One case that I can give away and then the other case that I keep all for myself. You know, that, I believe that there is a such thing as wine karma. So, you know, you bring a good bottle, you get a good bottle. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I didn't think about it that way. I was just more like, you know, this tastes so good. It's so hard for me sometimes to share. Uh, but, spe- speaking but now of the- that I know that there's plenty at the wine merchant in Clayton, yes. at least we know I, I'm not going to run out. <laughs> right. Very good point. So and I'm not going to be invited to any holiday parties, obviously, after they listen to this, <laughs> this No, this I podcast. think you will. They know that you're going to be bringing Cap Royale, which is delicious, by the way. I think when you taste it, you're going to find a really nice range of notes, everything from that really nice dark berries. I get blackberry. I get cream to cassis. I just picked up a little violet just now as I snuck a little sip, um, a little vanilla, some toasted oak. I'm curious 
curious in Michelle's explanation, though, of her description of this wine. Oh, well, I have already um, confessed that I've drank a few bottles of this <laughs> wine. Not today, but, you know, since, uh, since we've tasted it at the class. But I really feel like this bottle of wine is... It's like a nice long hug. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just mm-hmm. when you take a sip and you, you just, it goes down and you feel warm all through. Yeah, it kind of like comfy. And, and it is kind of gray outside today mm-hmm. um, and rainy. So I just sort of, it just makes me want to like, you know, wrap. It's it's like, like wraps that, itself in me. Yeah, it's like you've got a fuzzy blanket around you. Yeah, nice warm blanket. I, like that. Um, okay. I don't have the palette fuzzy of blanket. you know identifying the <laughs> that lone berry in the name of the bee that uh, pollinated the f- flower that ended up you know next to the grape, <laughs> like Emily does. But wow. uh, for those of you that like my descriptions, this is this is definitely um, a warm blanket wrapped you in a hug, Cap Royale. Like well, I'm interested to hear what our friends. Sarah has to say. So why don't we go ahead and bring her on in in this conversation? Introduce Sarah for us. Sarah is an amazing woman. Of course she is. Yes. We, um, the first time we met, she shared with me her background. She has a PhD. Um, and I don't recall the exact literacy, lit- yeah, reading, writing, literacy. There you go. That's our friend That's Sarah. Sarah. <laughs> and um, her specialty is ethnodrama. And she works with children to help them open up communication, help deal with trauma um, uh, in it through drama. And I know that she can describe this in a much more eloquent way. Um, I, when we first started talking, I was like, ethnodrama, that I, I think I understand maybe what that means based on the word, but I'm not exactly sure. And then she started telling me about the work that she does, and I was just blown away. So can you explain, Sarah, a little bit more about what What's ethnodrama? Sure, absolutely. So ethnodrama is the study, the collaborative study of social issues. And usually they're, um, when I'm working with students, we focus on place-based issues. So right in our backyards, in our communities, what are we facing? What are the questions that we have? What are the concerns that are kind of keeping us up at night? And then it's a sort of a collaborative inquiry that students take on by going out into the communities to interview a wide range of people from lots of different backgrounds. And then they turn their interviews into films and dramas that they use to facilitate cross-cultural dialogue and problem solving in the direction of informed collective action. Amazing. So. That is an awful lot. That is very <laughs> heavy. Um so I need you to have a little bit of wine. <laughs> if you could take a sip, and then we will come back and address all, like all those different layers and translate it down to um, my level today. I am a little, I am a little tired. I apologize to our listeners out there. I have had a, I've had a full day um, driving, lots of driving. So, um, so, so why? Tell us a little bit about why you were on the road for so long and today. Well. Yeah. Uh, Tomorrow is uh, the election. Mm-hmm. When this airs, uh, everything will already be uh, decided and finalized. But uh, my my college-age son lives a couple hours away from St. Louis, and I wanted to make sure he votes. <laughs> so <laughs> so I drove him all the way to you. his college, <laughs> picked him up and another classmate of his, another fraternity brother of his, and brought them back to St. Louis so they can vote tomorrow. But uh, they're going to drive back themselves after that. And I just didn't want to rely on him sending in an absentee ballot or it, mm-hmm. you know, arriving on time in the mail and stuff. So since his college is only two hours away, but I say that, mm-hmm. but still it's two hours and then just two hours back and it was right. raining the whole Dark. way, the whole drive. time today. That's so a long drive, four hours in a day. So mm-hmm. I, I, I can't imagine what my um, collaborative drama today, would, how that would look for, uh, for all of our listeners. It's be. probably, well, depending on the results tomorrow, the drama could be, oh, you know, tra- one way or another, right? The drama right? could continue. But, um, so we what might do you think of the wine? I love the wine. I'm actually much more of a white wine person. Mm-hmm. But in the past couple of times that I've sat down with you guys and had red wine, I've been like, rediscovering red wine. So this to me, I'm not a heavy mm-hmm. wine drinker. And so I really like light and mm-hmm. flavorful. And to me, this accomplishes both of those things. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. we do apologize. The last time we did hold you down and pour the red wine <laughs> over you and said, drink it. Drink you it. You're going like to it. like it. No, I loved it. I loved it. 
This is, um, I gave this two hours, by the way. Okay. I've been letting this breathe for two hours. I've, yeah. we've, we've explored with this wine before, and I was like, you know what? I think today I'm going to let that breathe a little bit. And I'm glad I did because I think that maybe some of that weight mm-hmm. has been lifted a little bit. It just feels and, light. Yeah, some really... of the prettiness has really come out. So. I would like to suggest on a future episode to have maybe like a discussion on what wines that you can just open up and drink right out of the bottle. Because a lot of times I'm just ready to... Well, you can drink this. This is quite know, good right away. But, but like you... It's even like, better well, I, let it, I let it sit. I mean, you have such willpower. <laughs> That's true. So if we can identify, <laughs> you know, like when we had Anne on and she talked about her friend that like would walk by with the box wine and like take it right, yes. out, of the, right out of the box. Um, we don't want to do that, of course. But I think that would be nice if our listeners... And for me, we can identify bottles that are good. Just pop the cork, pour it in, drink it, and yeah. you're going to be good. Because sometimes waiting. I, you know what? I've never had <laughs> a problem waiting. Like I, I'm kind of notorious for, you know, like as a kid when I went trick-or-treating, I'd always save the best candy for last. And I'd save it so long that I'd actually never get to eat it and go bad because I was waiting for that moment, you know? So I, I kind of have this, I do I do this all the time. I always save the best for last. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't work in my favor. <laughs> but and in moments like this, clearly, clearly, it pays clearly. Off. So Emily and I would not have been very, very good siblings <laughs> at, at trick-or-treat time because Emily would find that all of the candy was gone <laughs> overnight. <laughs> and you'd be like, wait. Wait, where's where's my favorite? You, I was saving it, and I would be like, "You snooze, you lose." I'm going to eat it all now. So Halloween, ha- I know we're getting off track, but we'll come back to your the description of ethnodrama. Oh. But I want to ask a question because it was just Halloween. Yeah. So, um, can you? What's a favorite Halloween costume that usually a cowgirl? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is something you've done more than once. I think so. You think? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think so. Seventies chick cowgirl. I usually do something in that realm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, because yeah. you can just kind of go to your closet and yep. pull things out. Nice and, and make easy. It happen. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Michelle? What was your favorite? Oh well, now we're getting into all kinds of levels of you know therapy <laughs> that I haven't addressed about my you know non uh, non Halloween Halloween. Oh no! Uh, well, I always had these ideas of I wanted these grand costumes, but I just didn't have that kind of support from my family growing up. And then as I got older, it was always about costumes for my kids. Mm-hmm. I do have a black wig that sometimes I put on, and I just wear the black wig, and I look like hell. Um, is this just like a random you're sitting around the house want to spice things up yeah yeah me as long as i can open my bottle of wine and start drinking it right away i can sit around in my black wig as well no i um i yeah halloween was not my my favorite um Mm. holiday it was my ex-husband's and the kids and um but i just sort of like uh I I don't know. Maybe maybe someday I'll mm. I'll discover the the joy of it because I don't really have it now. And I'm so sorry, everybody out there in listener land, no. for bringing everybody. Well, down. you I mean, me you did drink. such a fam- fantastic job with the Marie Antoinette costume. So I just I just assumed you, you were a veteran uh, costume uh, person, designer, wearer. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really love the Marie Antoinette costume and wearing that. It was in January and I had this great big high wig and did all of that stuff. But for some th- some reason, maybe it's just, maybe, you know, Halloween's always been such a pressure-filled holiday mm. for me with having to take kids out to trick-or-treat. And in our neighborhood, my neighborhood here in St. Louis, we get hundreds and hundreds of kids that come through and it's not it's not something that you just well for me anyway where you just sit back and enjoy Mm. the the people coming back and forth because there's just so many that come through and I've been you know giving candy out it's a hundred dollars worth of candy for the last 20 years and yeah I'm just I'm just really in a I, I was, I was, terrible mood. I'm so sorry. Oh, my goodness. I, drink some more wine, Michelle. I was excited this year to be um, in a house again and thinking, oh, good, we're going to have trick-or-treaters. And I, you know, I went to the store to get some candy. And it's clearly been a while since I've had trick-or-treaters because I was like, oh, my God, this bag is $7. One bag. So small. <laughs> they're, like, like, they're like 20 oh pieces. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
So um, I was I was looking forward to the trick or treaters, and uh, I got you know the, I got the best candy, of course. Of course, you did. And we got two. Two trick or treaters. That was it. Wow. No, they all come down. So to, now you still have the candy. I at have your lots house. of. Of course, I have lots. I'm savoring it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It'll be there I, next year. I made my son, who's still a, he's in high school. I said to him the next day because he had gone to a friend's Halloween party and had passed out candy to the kids in the neighborhood, and he came home with like a lot of candy and. We had I you know several handfuls of it, and the next morning I said you have to take that to school with you. It cannot be here. Mm. It cannot be here. <laughs> so, so it's gone. It's out of the house. And anyway, how was your Halloween, Sarah? Oh, it was great. I I filled in for my sister, and she took her kids out, and then I got to be the the owner of the home, quote unquote. Yeah, <laughs> I got to pass out candy to all the kids who came into the neighborhood, and a lot of kids come in from the city, and so it was really great to meet the kids and <laughs> pass out candy. And hear the and jokes. I was like, please take a lot because not very many people come. And wow. did, but what, then my dad and I sat around and talked, and it was really great. Any so. clever costumes? Oh, little one-year-olds and dinosaurs. That was my favorite. Yeah. Just so cute, so so cute. I loved the. There was a little. Um, meme going around that was uh, this little kid, um, you know, he's, he's showing his mom his Halloween costume and he's, I think he's just shirt, loose tie, yeah, you know, <laughs> cigarette out of the mouth, alcohol bottle. He may or may not have pants on. I don't remember. And it's like, no, you cannot be Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah he's probably like risky business. You think like, you know, risky business like way back when. No, that was, that was a really funny meme. And then I have very talented friends that can do the whole face makeup and stuff like that. And I'm always like, wow. Impressive. You yeah. were like so great. Uh, well, I have finished my glass here. Thank goodness. I need a little bit more. Um, <laughs> do you want to take a real quick break and we come back and talk some more? Yeah, like really we'll get deep into Sarah's. no drama. Um, and there'll be no drama. <laughs> no drama. I'm going to I'm gonna, you know, shed it. Shed my uh, little sour face. Oh. And I'll come back after our Slam break. the rest of that glass. We'll refresh you and we'll come back and be ready to talk more. All right. All right. Well, I feel better now. Yeah, Thank you your guys smile so is much. much wider. I'm smiling a little bit, <laughs> a little bit bigger. You know, that's what happens when you have uh, when your wine will hug you, mm-hmm. and make you feel a little better. So, uh, anyway, Sarah, you were talking when you were discussing and um, t- t- giving us the definition of ethnodrama, and um, there was a collaborative study of social issues. My question to you is how. Did you get exposed to this to the begin with that you wanted to then make this your career? So I was a high school English teacher, and mm. I always had questions. Well, first and foremost, I came from St. Louis, so ethnodrama really is was birthed in St. Louis in, oh, really? in terms of my understanding and okay. in terms of what wow. I was reaching for. So I moved to St. Louis when I was five, and I had been living in New York City before that or outside of New York City. And I remember driving in and just thinking something's wrong with the city. And so my whole life growing up, uh, I just thought, I have to figure out why are we so racially divided. Mm-hmm. And when I was in third grade, desegregation happened. And so I started to be able to befriend kids who lived just, you know, five miles, 10 miles away from me. And then my questions started to spin even more. What What is going on? Why am I living in a community that has all the resources um, or seems to have all the resources? And how did this happen? And so I started to think, if there's some way for kids to tell their stories, they might be able to move the hearts and minds of the whole St. Louis region because I had become aware that too many kids were dying and that it didn't seem like St. Louis cared. And so I thought, how do we help kids tell their stories in a way that will move the hearts and minds of people to start to reinvest in the city And it took me a long time to understand how segregation worked. And I don't think it's a conversation we really have in our schools or in our communities. Mm -hmm. And so I think we're really depriving all of our kids across our region of the truth of Mm -hmm. how St. Louis became the way that it is. And so we have these narratives that we blame each other and we Mm -hmm. divide each other. And so uh, it wasn't until I discovered ethnodrama, a woman named Marsha Pincus was teaching ethnodrama up in Philadelphia when I was pursuing my PhD. And I had already come through a cycle of teaching for five years. I was an English teacher. I was a French teacher. I was a humanities teacher. What level did you teach? Elementary, Uh, middle school? school. It was high high school. school. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And it was a very segregated community in Boston. And I found myself teaching predominantly white students and then having to learn through my master's program about oh, I have a class. Oh, my goodness, that there's diversity amongst white people. And so my eyes started to become open and I thought, what do I, what do I have to learn about the divides between me and students? Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I started down the path of going to grad school. I actually had a stint back in St. Louis and got plugged into lots of really great groups here, Educators for Social Justice, Springboard to Learning, Gateway Writing Project, and really got to do some good professional development that opened my eyes as a teacher to what I was reaching for and got to do some writing and more research and but I, my question mm-hmm. when you when your eyes are being opened to all of these resources does that make you even sadder that not everybody else knows about these things in our region Yes. It made me sad about how many years I had lost. Mm -hmm. And then I thought of how many teachers are out there who don't know the truth of what kids are facing. No matter where you are in our region, kids are facing a lot because they aren't being taught the truth of how our city became so divided. And so we're we're actually re-inscribing the divides by not teaching the truth. And when I got to Philadelphia, I was afraid of ethnodrama at first because it's a form of literature that collects all the perspectives. Okay. And so when you read a play that's an ethnodramatic play, you're exposed to all these different ways of of processing these social issues. And uh, usually they revolve around like, um, you know, uh, the Laramie Project and... Yeah. The Laramie Project is what? It's a it's an ethnodrama that's very powerful that tells the story of Matthew Shepard, oh, the young okay. man who okay. was, was brutally murdered, mm-hmm. and uh, and so 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 ethnodrama doesn't have to be just black white. Oh gosh, no! It's every kind of issue. Okay, that's a great question, and and it's relevant to anyone in any context. Anybody can do an ethnodrama, and when I started reading ethnodramas, I started fearing them because they were so powerful. And then it was, how do I channel the power of mm-hmm. this ethnodrama? So I started learning from ethno dramatist that was my dissertation research how they were taking it up and I started learning from a teacher who was exploring it in her classroom Marsha um, uh, uh, Pincus and my advisor had connected me to her and then yeah. well yeah. how many years have you been doing this though because this sound, doesn't sound like something that you just started last week no I started in 2006 I, okay. I, I put myself right back in the classroom when I did my PhD program and I kept teaching and using drama to help inspire kids to do research in their local communities mm-hmm. and then I realized I could get kids talking across race or class or gender or sexual orientation or religion or whatever the difference might be but it was so powerful that kids would come in the next day and they would not want to even look at me because it had messed with their identities. It had upset their belief systems too fast. And so I needed a way to kind of slow things down and follow the students more and mm-hmm. work at their pace. And And ethnodramas became my vehicle. And the way that I developed an ethnodrama teaching method based on what ethnodramatists were doing became my vehicle to really help bring kids together and keep them in a, what I call it, a liminal space, that transitional space where you don't know who you are anymore. And, yeah. I, I imagine that there's, uh, it's got to be a real specific approach. I mean, you're you're dealing with um, kids who have come from uh, very challenging backgrounds, and you know, processing that information in a in a in a way that doesn't harm them. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's almost like going to therapy, right? You mm-hmm. you you by by acting the or going through these dramas, they're getting a chance to maybe release some of their frustrations mm-hmm. and so but you you can't pile that all on at once it has to be staged out in a way that that they can kind of process as they go so that's a really brilliant observation and what i've learned is that so my advisor was susan lytle at the University of Pennsylvania, and she is the queen of practitioner inquiry. And practitioner inquiry is the study of your practice as you go. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what field you're in, you can study your practice as you go. Mm -hmm. And so as a teacher, I had so many questions about how to connect more meaningfully with students. And when I got to that program, I had a mentor and a lot of different collaborative inquiry opportunities where we were teaching collaboratively and then studying our practice together. And so we were taking field notes and we were talking to students and interviewing students and figuring out how to pace it 
at a way mm-hmm. in a way that they could handle it. So I can't really do ethnodrama without teacher research, and those are the the without teacher research. Yes, a okay. practitioner inquiry and teacher okay. research are the same thing. Okay, and it's it's a systematic study of your practice where you know what your question is. Like I know I tend to impose, and I have to figure out a way to reel myself in and really learn from the students and follow them and hear their mm-hmm. questions. And so I've I've learned over time how to really ask good probing questions so that I can learn my students. And then when, as I see where they're going, then I start to help them shape their own inquiries based on what they care about. And then I have to keep reeling myself back in to let the kids lead, let the kids lead. How do you, and, how do you know. develop a trust with them? Because I, I could see that if you're working with students who are coming from a, a disadvantaged background, let's say majority African-American, and then they look at you and you're a white lady who can just get in her car and drive away and leave their neighborhood. How do you build that trust that they believe in you to help them. It's cyclical. It's a cyclical process. It is not something I ever take for granted. And a lot of it is stepping back and letting them tell their stories. Okay. And once they see that I'm listening and really listening for what story they're sharing and how it connects with their neighborhood, with the larger history that mm-hmm. they're recreating or that they haven't learned or that they do know or they don't know, then I can start to guide them in a way that they see that I'm building right where they are. Okay. I can't get too far ahead of them. And it's, it's a balancing act. There are times when I do get too far ahead or there are times that I don't hear the right question. And so collaborative inquiry is more powerful when it's in community with other teachers and when more people have an eye on the data to say, okay, what is the identity development of these students? What do we understand this particular class needs um, what, in this what combination are some of, of the, yeah. um, what's What are some stories that you've helped these children um, process and some that really stick with you? So right out of the gate, <laughs> uh, when I was uh, teaching in Philadelphia, I uh, was following the students and following the students, and I had had a year of exploratory teaching. And then I finally just thought, I got to bite the bullet. I know they're asking for and Are these high school students? These were high school students. Okay. And okay. it was we're a drama sure. elective class okay. the first year. And okay. then the second year, I really set it all up around ethnodrama because by then I had realized, okay, this is it. <laughs> okay. And so I designed the whole class about ethnodrama, but I couldn't impose it on them. Mm-hmm. And so I had to find a way to introduce it to them that they would be like, this is something we would want to do. And so it took me like just studying them and studying myself and figuring out how we were going to build this bridge to each other. And finally, I remember there was this turning point where the students said, well, since we're going to be ethnographers and all that. Ethnographer. <laughs> I went, yes, they're using my academic language. And, and they ended up wanting to take up the question of gender. Oh. And, yeah. And so it started with them wanting to uh, study how their moms, who were predominantly single moms, how their moms were processing uh, the workforce and navigating the, the many different aspects of their worlds as women. Wow. A very relevant topic now. How yes. long ago was this? This was in 2010, I okay. believe. And so uh, we were able to, I, I was able to follow them into that inquiry and through that inquiry. And for the next six months, that's where we, that's where we started. And we kept, the inquiry kept changing. So it ended up going into, you know, gender as a binary and into LGBTQIA issues. And, and by the time that we were getting ready to perform, there was a student in the class who was adamant that he had the right to say, that's so gay or you're an F. And he said, but I don't mean it in a mean way. And so we had, I had worked through all my field note-taking and everything to figure out how to help this student look from a different angle at this belief that he had that he was innocent, but he could still use this language. And, and so um, they, we came to the day of the performance, and I kid you not, this is not uncommon. I showed up for the performance, and the kids are not there. What? And you're performing for like the other parents? Like, is it, the entire school. Okay, so it's a... It's, it's been booked. It's, it's an been, assembly it's and an they're assembly. all going to be there. They're supposed to be there. Yeah. I show up. And they've had a, Their whole schedule has been changed. <laughs> you know, they're on like a D schedule and that's so they can have the assembly at the end of the day. None of your kids showed up? They're not, they're not there. So I just calmly, you know, took a deep breath and I thought, okay, they're scared. I have to listen to why they're scared. 
And so I sent one of my leaders in the class out to find them. I said, can you find the students and bring them? So she did. She brought them in and they started. Because you had not been practicing your stand-up routine, had you? <laughs> Nobody would want to hear my stand-up I mean, routine. yeah. You're like, I did not work on that last night. You did not want me to like step in right now. No, I don't think I'd slept much. <laughs> so, so in came the students and they're literally just crawling in like, we don't want to do this. So I pull them into a group huddle and we have this little pep talk and... And they say, we don't think our, our, the students here are going to believe us and that they're going to change anything about what they believe and that, you know, we're, we just think that they're, they're not going to get it. And, mm-hmm. and so I just went the way my mom, Mama Hobson, man, mm-hmm. you know, I just <laughs> whipped up some Nancy Hobson and I was like, look, you guys have to remember the passion you have for this. And you have to believe that if you commit to this, they're going to commit to this. And they did. They committed. And they were amazing. But they, we had this loose setup. I, I draw on Boal quite a bit, which is a people in my world will know that that kind of drama. It's an interactive form of drama, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we um, allow almost like improv. It's like improv, but you're really figuring out um, how to interact across differences and okay. across different beliefs. And so uh, they pulled up a student onto stage at one point, who was a student who uh, belonged to a gay community. And in his gay community, the language that they used reinscribed the stereotypes that we were trying to break down. Wow. That one student, you were trying to have him approach it from a different point of view. Right. And so this young man was totally on board with our cause, but he used language that was really shocking. And I'd been Like what? What did he say? Oh, I you can't can, say We have a podcast. Well, yeah, yeah, but if she's uncomfortable saying yeah, okay. it, you don't need it's to. It's the C word. You know what I mean? Oh, it's, it was bad. Okay. It was bad. But it was being oh. used against, you know, within his gay community, against, you know, in a right. way that was actually Offense. undermining Got it. And so we could see that, but we w- we don't belong to his community, and so we couldn't we didn't feel comfortable speaking, you know. So it was right. this this place of like, what do we do? And that young man that I was trying to work with said, I, I just looked at the students because they were like, right. you know, and this is the, a live performance. This is live, and the you know the assistant principal is looking at me like I'm going to kill you. Yeah, she's like, yeah. Over here. funding has just been pulled. <laughs> wow. I mean, the superintendent is calling. I don't know that I, I, you know, I yeah. was sick that day, right? I wasn't actually there when the assembly's happening. Everybody's freaking out, They're, and you're like, oh, this is what I do. <laughs> I was like, this is this is powerful. This is what I mean. And so I went to the students and I just looked at them and I said. I went like this, like, are you okay? And so I pulled them over into a group huddle on the side of the stage, and I just looked at them, and I said, are you okay? And that young man said, this wasn't what was supposed to happen. This isn't what we were trying to say about gender. And I said, you want to handle this? And I'm literally going, (laughs) (laughs) right. And he said, give me the microphone. And I said, you guys got this? You feel okay? And they said, we got it. So I stepped back, because it's all about students leading. And mm. so he took that microphone and he said, this is not what we were talking about. Mm. We were talking about breaking down gender binaries and that we're tired of being assigned a gender. And mm. we want to break through the ceiling and we want to be able to be who we are. And he says this just better than I could have said it. <laughs> and I was just wow. like, <laughs> it's, it's probably far more powerful to the students from the students as opposed to an adult stepping in saying, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That's not what we were trying to do here. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that I noticed in that, though, this was my dissertation work. And what I noticed in that was that it's not that kids become advocates overnight. It doesn't matter what race, what class, what background. You know, some students are born activists and some students are scared of that. And, Mm -hmm. And so what I was watching over the course of studying the students over time was it was the act of performing. That helped them step into the shoes of an activist and learn how to advocate for each other in the moment, impromptu, on stage, in a way that they were interacting and talking with their audience and moving back and forth and collaboratively advocating for what they were also learning they believed in the moment. That's empowering (laughs) on a lot of levels. It it built trust within their own community Mm -hmm. and this dialogue between the adults and the kids and then, you know, hopefully... Um, left them with this feeling that they can they can be an agent of change. Yes. And that happens. That happens. Great. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, can we talk about where or explore how ethnodrama collaborative study, how that then can transform communities beyond the classroom? I mean, that's pretty heavy. Yeah, but definitely. About that. That's where we're headed. All right. And then we'll come right back. 
we're back. And we're back. Sarah, before we took our break and refilled our glasses and uh, had several gulps of wine in between, <laughs> I asked you, how does this work that you're doing with the students, the ethnodrama, the collaborative study, how does that like then get transformed or transferred out into the community? What kind of change do you expect to see? Do you hope for? I mean, I know these are kind of some pretty deep questions, but my my reaction or my 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 thoughts are: this is great that this is happening with the kids because they can change what their future is going to be. But how can we, as grown ups who have been living in the non ethnodrama way? benefit from these discussions that are happening? So uh, over the past couple of years here in St. Louis, I've brought ethnodrama back to St. Louis. And uh, what I've really come to believe is ethnodrama is a vehicle for helping everybody understand how to do their part to end the inequalities that we have been living and recreating over and over again. And so uh, I've really come to connect in my my personal agenda mm-hmm. <laughs> is connecting ethnodrama with housing okay. and, and really unpacking how housing created segregation and how the mm-hmm. federal government in particular contributed to the separation of the races across our country, but definitely in St. Louis. And it's, it's pretty stark and, and, and yeah. shocking here in St. Louis. I mean, right. I know you studied across the U.S., so it's not like we're the only community that suffers from this. But maybe we're the most blatant. Well, we're we're uh, uh, you know the Civil War. We're a border state, mm-hmm. and so we Im- imitated border states, and we tried to segregate in 1916, and to put in an ordinance that actually required that. And then when that ordinance didn't hold up in the federal Supreme Court, we ended up installing real- realtors who redlined and created what was called the St. Louis Realtor Exchange. And they bonded together, white realtors bonded together, and they went house to house, and they said to people, you don't want people of color living in your neighborhood. So make sure you write into your covenant, into your, into your racial subdivision. Wow. Uh, co- yeah. Covenants, really? Wow. Restrictive covenants. And so then uh, white people became afraid that their property values were going to go down. The whole federal government was labeling communities that were African-American at subpar value to what the homes really were Mm. assessed at. and But white properties and white neighborhoods got labeled at a higher value. And so oh, for all these years, think of everything that comes with housing mm-hmm. and the stability of a home and the way that you can accrue capital over time. And white people were sent out to the suburbs. They had the mortgages. The federal government gave them the mortgages. Mm-hmm. And we don't talk about this history. And so what we really have to talk about and what we have been taking up in the past couple of years since I've moved back to St. Louis and continued this work here is how banks contribute to redlining, mm-hmm. how realtors contribute to redlining. It still happens. It is still happening. We have not come very far in a yeah. lot of ways. How uh, healthcare has contributed to redlining. We do not have transportation that's equal across our region. No, and the people who most need it don't have access to it. Food insecurity, yeah. all of these schools. issues are interconnected. Schools, the tax base that's been depleted, <laughs> right. the businesses. I was just at, down at Sumner High School, the most thriving community in the 1960s. Absolutely incredible entrepreneurs who had businesses and sheet metal factories and everything you could possibly imagine. And because of white flight, all of that tax base was swept out from underneath people. And so now Sumner High School, which is an amazing cornerstone of our city, you know, has been completely undermined and the population has has sunk um, and both with, in the neighborhood and in the school. And with yeah. that comes um, res- resentment, frustration, mm-hmm. anger. Yep. And and it's what they live, what they experience every single day, and and it, it translates into the disruptions and the, the anger on the street, the riots, the oh yeah. Did you? There was a, an amazing exhibit at the Contemporary Art Museum here in St. Louis a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that um, they actually brought in a, a a house that was, you know, had been torn down from North St. Louis. And, um, and then they had these videos playing where they interviewed people that are in these neighborhoods that are quite desolate. Um, 
And it was a really, they, they were really wonderful perspectives. These, these particular interviews were people who were proud of the neighborhoods and um, proud of the community that they live in and proud of, of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And which, which was such, for me, I was just, it, it astounded me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love thinking that, you know, in the news, we hear all of these stories about how bad it is, but we don't hear all these stories about these amazing people who are still, you know, coming together and supporting each other. And it's very unfortunate circumstances as you're, you're sharing with us. And I think we just need more humanity to come out to recognize that there are beautiful people living in these areas that, you know, that are just like People living in richer communities where, you know, they support one another. They come together. They, they, they roast a turkey on Thanksgiving. You know, they, they care about their community and the children in it. And instead yeah. of being afraid to cross these borders, you know. Well, maybe, maybe the part of the problem, and, you know, I'm just, I'm not a research person. I don't, haven't, you know studied this academically in any way and this is typical of a female to put all out of qualifications. I was going to say. <laughs> a lot of qualifiers yeah, before I actually You're say, a bright woman. Uh, before I say anything. Um, we don't feel like maybe we don't claim those communities as our own. We are so divided mm-hmm. in St. Louis, point. right? South yeah. City, West County, North County, you know, we take and we identify with that, you know, two blocks right around us, but we don't actually feel or Accept the fact that what happens to a family mm-hmm. in North St. Louis impacts how my life is in South St. Louis. What happens to yeah. a family in West St. Louis County does impact the, the that child in North St. Louis and and across mm-hmm. the river. So we we have a tendency to do hands off. Not my problem. Right. You don't look like me. You don't live in my neighborhood. You don't drive my car. Whatever it is, and usually it's on an economic. You well racial and economic lines and if we could start as adults realizing or accepting that what happens to them impacts me there are so neighbors. i need to care yeah i need to care so when i was growing up i had this very strong feeling that my family had been ripped out from underneath my feet well, I'll explain I that felt a little bit div- more. I felt, I felt that my family had been divided, that I had been separated from my family. And I think we need to use that language. We are family. We are a St. Mm. Louis family. We are. We're yeah. a national family. Mm. We've yes. been taught how to demonize each other, how to other each other. We've been taught that we're not human, that mm-hmm. the other person is not human. Mm-hmm. And that is the spirit of ethnodrama, to get back to building relationships through language that helps build those bridges and that helps us understand that we are in the human family, all of us. Mm. So, okay, well, now back to my question before. You're working with children, and that's a high school students. That's a lot to put on them to carry it for the rest of the 60% of the population that are not uh, high school age and younger. How do you how do you get those conversations going with grown-ups? The youth do it. That's okay. the short answer. And what happens is that if they have been in a position to really lead and to really be able to shape and to have resources that help them tell their stories in the way that they want to tell their stories, and if they really understand the context and the audiences that they're speaking with, they are powerful communicators. And even if they don't understand the context, they're powerful <laughs> mm-hmm. communicators. Even if something's a totally new academic audience and they're like, I don't know, I've never been in this kind of a setting. They pull out the most amazing moves you've ever seen because they're living and they've, they've come through a program where they're engaged in inquiry all the time. And so when they get out in public, they're able to kind of go, oh, yeah. I thought you might think that way. Yeah. And so here, I know you're going to need to hear this. So I'm going to say something that you don't expect. And I'm going to help you look from a different angle in a way that you see me as a person, not as somebody who's just a person of color, as a person mm-hmm. equal to you. So you're so. working with these students and these, these young men and women, and you're, you're creating change agents. Yes. And then they are going to go out in their communities or their colleges or whatever, and then they become like a, like a pebble in a lake, and it creates the ripples, and it, it just changes everybody that they come in contact with. It's, a, it's the, the hardest part of ethnodrama 
is helping students process their rage because uh, they can, have righteous rage. I can see where that would be a problem and or, or a challenge or an opportunity. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have rage. Everybody has rage. Everybody has rage. You know, you can take and just focus on women and the rage that we feel mm-hmm. today. White males have rage. Mm-hmm. There's, they're raging more in some ways than anybody. Yeah, right? So they are. Yeah. So it seems that ethnodrama is, is a technique that can be useful across segments of the population. Mm-hmm. It could be used for healing among women, among men, among elderly, among the youth. It gives us permission to go back to being broken because we are, every one of us. And the whole premise is we are broken. Accept it. Don't be a Democrat who thinks that you're all that and you're better than everybody else. You're not. Mm -hmm. You have racism in your blood just the way that you have sexism, just the way that you have homophobia. Deal with it. Mm -hmm. Right? Nobody gets to be on a pedestal of a high and mighty. We are broken. We are the, we are the, some of our experiences and all of our experiences are limited. And our job is to reach the olive branch across the aisle of that person that we think is so different from us to hang out, grab some wine, talk, get to know them, and right. to stop making assumptions. Right. And adults need that as much as kids need that. And when kids get that to their core, when youth get that to their core and they model that to adults, we had one session a year ago, the first group of students I worked with, three weeks, just had a quick three-week program with them. And a year later, we went out to a smart growth conference that was here in St. Louis. And they got to talk to all these smart growth leaders, you know, high-tech people who are going to change cities and coming in with all their plans. I'm a consultant (laughs) and I've got this great idea. We do that as white people. We come in with plans. Or we hire somebody else to come in with plans. We we have the answer because we're supposed to be the experts, right? And so the students went into this conference, into that kind of a climate. And within an hour, a room of adults, most everybody had wept. Fantastic. I would love to have, like, been a fly on the wall with that man or woman who were, who were attendance, attendees at that conference and their thought processes on their way home, you know? Because that's not something that they're going to be able to go, oh, well, that was just that conference. You know, like... I feel like in talking with you and and having wine with you and listening that you bring th- you bring a realization to people to the children and the students that you can't you can't walk away from once you know it once you see it you can't pretend you don't mm-hmm. you don't see it anymore you don't see it anymore That's right. right yeah and and you have a responsibility and you also have a responsibility to be humble Oh, I don't know. This is going to be hard on this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to try. I'm going to try, Sarah. But humble is not my middle name. But that's is. the goal. But that's, that's the, the goal. goal. That's to get everybody to a place where they can more listen and they can share. And of course, there. the more wine I drink, the yeah. less humble I get. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you're so right. And, you know, we don't... I, I, you know, I did travel a lot growing up and I, you know, my dad was military and, and, and this was my, like my own little takeaway from, or my example is when, um, you know, I grew up under all the military propaganda, you know, the commie, this, you know, F that, you know, all these things that you just hear as a child, you know, of, of, um, when you're in the military or you're moving around. And I was in, um, I was in East Berlin in April of 1990 as a, as a 20 year old and I'm walking around I'm like oh my god the sun shines here <laughs> and the birds sing and those that couple that's walking they just got married and it was like such a an eye opener for me it was like wait it doesn't matter where we are it just matters what government we've we've been born under because we are human beings and we laugh and we cry and we all, I know that's so cliche. We all bleed red, but when we can look at somebody else as a, as a human, just like you are, and they're going to laugh and they're going to cry and they're going to hope and they're going to be sad when, you know, things don't work out. Then, then they're not, they're not an animal and they're not out to, hurt you and it just I think it there's a level it's a it levels things so now this song is in my head that comes from my high school days the Depeche Mode song people are people 
And why yes. couldn't it be? Yeah. You and I could get along <laughs> right. so awfully. Yeah. yeah. And, and truly, yeah. like, I'm going to put this out there, but we got to say this. It's so important for everybody to hear this. It's so easy to even take somebody who is violent and hateful and discriminatory and other them. But when you really hear their story and when you really understand what what they're feeling and what their fears are and how they've been programmed and on yeah. all of those things, they're just as human as the next mm-hmm. person and yeah. just as capable of goodness. They have their the own life person. experiences yeah. that have gotten them to that point. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and we have to we have to build those bridges. Well, I really believe that this is not a conversation that we can have just one time. Absolutely. And I yeah. hope that uh, you will come back. I'd love to. And talk with us some more, especially we can hear more about the different actual projects you're working on with the students. And and if any of our listeners mm-hmm. are interested in following up some more, I mean, we'll have some links on our website, but where, sure. would, where would be a good place that they could go to right now after they're, they're like, like, they have their phone, they're listening to the podcast and they're like, I need this information right now. And I don't want to look up clearly, pod, clearly speaking, the podcast.com. <laughs> <laughs> where can they go? Community Alley. AlliesConsulting.com. CommunityAlliesConsulting.com. We'll make sure to have a link to that on our right. website. And we also have a Facebook page. It's the St. Louis Community Allies. And you can see some of the students and the projects and the interviews and the podcast, previous podcasts. Oh, fantastic. Great. Thank you so Thank much, Thank you for Sarah. joining us, It's my Sarah. pleasure. Thank you for having me. Come back Thank you for again. the great questions. I really appreciate the great questions. Well, you yeah. make it easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've learned a lot. Yeah. I feel so much better. Thank you so much for, <laughs> for today. I know we're just human. We're all human. <laughs> I had a bad morning. I feel. I feel like I'm hopeful now. I'm really yeah. hopeful. I'm excited. I'm excited about the work you do, and I'm excited to be in St. Louis where this work is happening. It's just beginning. It's just beginning. Just beginning. Great. Well, right. we can't wait to hear what's next. And thank you for joining us, Sarah. Okay. Thanks so much, you guys, for having me. And yeah, I really appreciate your heart too for St. Louis. I everywhere I go, that's what I hear. People all have a heart for this city, and we can do this together. We can all figure out our part and do something different that makes it better for the students who need us. Absolutely. Cheers, Cheers to that. Cheers on that, girl. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast. Right. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, mm-hmm. TuneIn, Spotify. Like everywhere, everywhere you can get a podcast, yeah. we are there, I, yeah. I believe. And if and if there's some place that you're that we know need of, to be that we need to be. Let us know. Um, We now also have a phone number. So if you want to share your story with us. We have a comment line. um, Please give us a call. And it is so new that I actually don't have it by memory, but you can find it on our website. (laughs) Well, the area code's 812. (laughs) I know. It's just a line. But anyway, we'll have it on our website. You can find us. We promise you. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us. Cheers.